0: Okay, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Luke 13, verses 22 to 30. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last." Father, I pray that you would grant the power of your Holy Spirit upon this passage of Scripture, this so important teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, make it live. Cause it to bring life and salvation to people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 22, we read that he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Now we know why he was proceeding to Jerusalem. It's because Jesus knows that he's about to die. He came into the world to be a sacrifice for sin. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he knows that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders will arrest him and put him to death. But as he's proceeding from one city and village to another, the Bible says that he's teaching. Now what do you suppose he was teaching about? I don't think we have to wonder. The last few verses, Luke 13 verses 18 to 21, tell us that Jesus was teaching in parables. And he told a parable about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed that starts off very, very small and grows into a very large plant. And then he says the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it leavened or permeated, fermented all of that dough. Jesus was teaching about the Kingdom of God. Now that shouldn't surprise us either because in Luke chapter 8 verse 1, we have a summary statement about Jesus' ministry. And it says there, Soon afterwards, He began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the Kingdom of God. There it is. Jesus' primary message as He went about preaching and teaching was, He was expounding on the kingdom of God. Of course, Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And all those who submit to his rule and reign become citizens of the kingdom and enter into the sphere of salvation. Now, we know that's the case here in Luke chapter 13 because we just have to keep reading. Verse 23 says that someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved and Jesus said to him strive to enter through the narrow door Lord are there just a few who are being saved Jesus answer strive to enter now enter what what were they to strive to enter well we don't have to wonder about that because in verse 28 and 29 Jesus tells us he says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God so when Jesus said strive to enter what he's talking about is strive to enter the kingdom make sure you are in the kingdom now we come back to this fellow's question verse 23 He said, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And notice that Jesus doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He doesn't answer this guy directly. He gives sort of a roundabout answer. What he basically says is, don't worry about how many are being saved. It's not important. It's not relevant. What you need to be concerned about is not how many are being saved, but are you being saved? The question is not, Lord, are there a few being saved? The question should be, Lord, are you, am I, being saved? Now, I find it fascinating to look at how Jesus evangelized. Don't you? I mean, we have our 21st century American methods of evangelism. And uh, basically, we tell people that becoming a Christian is very easy and it's very simple. You just follow the ABCs. A. Admit you're a sinner. B. Believe Christ died for your sins. C. Confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're in. And you should never doubt whether you're a Christian after that. A. B. C. Simple and easy. Jesus didn't exactly follow those methods, did he? When they said, Lord, are there just a few being saved? Jesus didn't say, well, make sure you're saved by admitting believing, and confessing. Jesus didn't say, well, just pray this prayer after me. Jesus didn't say, just say these words, and everything's good. Jesus didn't say, just accept me into your heart. Jesus didn't say, come down to the front and pray this prayer with me, and you're a Christian. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I believe that our methods of evangelism in the the United States have produced literally millions of false converts. Millions of people who think that they're on their way to heaven when they're actually on their way to hell. And we've done this because we have preached this simple and this easy gospel whereby all they do is just say a prayer, repeat some words, go down to the front, raise their hand, and they think that's all that is required for a person to become a Christian. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. I I know that I may sound heretical, perhaps, in this message. I don't intend to do that. I wanna be biblical. And if we were to be biblical and follow the methods of Jesus, let's actually follow them. Strive to enter through the narrow door. You see, I believe we have produced so-called converts that are still in love with their sin. They are still the center of their universe. And so they've never been actually converted. To be converted means to be changed. To be transformed from one thing into another. Well, that's never happened to them. They maintain the very same nature they were born with. They've never experienced a radical new nature that was given to them by God. Now, we need to ask ourselves a simple question. When a person becomes a Christian, what are they actually saved from? What are people saved from? Now, if we are to listen to popular... Televangelists or radio preachers, we might come away with the idea that, oh, well, we are saved from a life of unfulfillment. Or maybe a life of dissatisfaction or purposelessness. Maybe we'd come away with the idea that we're saved from a life of poverty. Or maybe we're saved from sickness. My friends, that is not what the Bible says that we are saved from. Sometimes we think that to become a Christian means that Jesus comes into my life, I sort of connect with God through Jesus Christ, and then Jesus fulfills all of my dreams and all of my ambitions. But you know the truth is that at conversion, that's the end of your dreams, and the end of your ambitions, and you are grafted into the very life of God in Jesus Christ. His life makes you a brand new person, and you begin to embrace his dreams and his ambitions. Remember Jesus told those that would follow him, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The very first thing he tells people that have an inkling that they desire to follow Jesus, he says, okay, this is what it's like, deny yourself, take up your cross, the instrument of torture, and then begin actually following in my footsteps. In fact, when we get to chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, Jesus is going to say, unless you hate your father and mother, brother and sister, wife and children, and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. He says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. He says, unless you give up all your own possessions, you can't be my disciple. So to become a Christian, is not just adding Jesus Christ to your old life. It's not like that at all. It's not like your life is a pie divided up into eight slices, and somehow you're going to squeeze a ninth piece of pie into that circle. And so we've added Jesus to our life. No, that's not it at all. To become a Christian means it's the obliteration of your old life. And a brand new life begins with Jesus Christ as the king and the center of your universe, and you no longer love and pursue a life of sin now you love Christ and pursue a life of holiness so let's ask ourselves again what are we saved from when we are saved when we become a christian well this is what the bible says Matthew 121 and you shall call his name Jesus for it is he who will save his people from their what from their sins or colossians 113 He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. What did He rescue us from? The domain, the dominion of darkness, Satan's kingdom. Or a third one, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. says that we're waiting for Jesus who will save us from the wrath to come. So what does the Bible say a person is saved from? He's saved from his sins. He's saved from the dominion of darkness, which is Satan's kingdom. And he is saved from the wrath of God to come. God's holy anger, which will be poured out upon all sin in hell one day. Now I want you to come back to this word in verse 24. The man says, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Jesus answer, strive, strive. Remember Jesus once said that since John the Baptist, the kingdom of God is being taken by force and it's the violent who are taking the kingdom? It's those who are striving? Well, this word strive, it's the Greek word agonizomai. We get our English word, you can probably guess, can't you? Agonize. Agonize, to enter through the narrow door. It literally means to fight. It's the word that is used when Paul talks about fighting the good fight of faith. It means to struggle with, contend with. It's also the word that is used of athletes who are striving to gain that first prize crown. As they say, cross the line first. So agonize, strive, fight, struggle, contend to enter through the narrow door. Now, why in the world would we have to fight? To enter God's kingdom. Well, the answer is because there's a war going on. There is a battle for your soul and for my soul. And many are not saved simply because they never fought to enter the kingdom. You see, the world, the flesh, and the devil will exert all of their influence to try to keep you in the devil's kingdom. The world and its allurements and trinkets and gadgets and toys will try to keep you pursuing all of that. The flesh. Your, your sinful inclinations. They will draw you away from God. They'll draw you away from the things of God and pull you into those the, the area where you're pursuing your own lusts and your own interests. And then, of course, Satan. Satan doesn't want to lose a single soul. He's going to exert his utmost to keep you within his bounds, within his dominion. I want to show you a passage in Romans 8.13. It's not just Jesus that talked like this. Paul talked like this too. Paul said in Romans 8.13, If we are living according to the flesh, we must die. But if by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, we will live. Now what's he talking about? He talks about dying and living. If you live according to the flesh, you must die. If you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know, we, we try to water those words down to mean something that they don't. What Paul's talking about here is hell, dying, heaven, living and he's saying that you know how you can know which people are going to hell and which people are going to heaven those people that are going to hell their life is characterized by living according to their flesh and those people who are on their way to heaven their life is characterized by putting to death the deeds of the body so those on their way to hell They're living according to the flesh. They're indulging the flesh. They love the flesh. They love the sins of the flesh. And those who are on their way to heaven, they're striving and struggling and fighting against the deeds, the sinful deeds of the body. Remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus gives those seven letters to seven different churches, at the end of every single letter, he has an overcoming statement where he says, he who overcomes, or to him who overcomes. And he follows that with a beautiful, glorious promise about heaven. He who overcomes shall eat of the paradise of God and the tree of life. Or to him who overcomes, they will not be hurt by the second death. But notice, it's to him who overcomes. What's being stated there is that the true believer will overcome. He will fight and struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he will be freed from that. And he will follow Jesus Christ down the narrow path that leads to life. And he will enjoy the heavenly glorious promises. Now I'm not talking about striving as a payment to enter the kingdom. Really what I'm talking about is striving to be free in order to enter the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom if you're being held back by your flesh or by the devil or by the world system. Salvation is a gift, but everybody who has received that gift will evidence the fact that they are recipients of that gift by striving to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this morning, all that is introduction, but now this morning, going back to Luke 13, I have a very simple question, and here it is. Why do we have to strive to enter the kingdom? Why? And there's three answers that Jesus gives here. Number one, because the door is narrow. Two, because the door will soon be shut. And three, because the door will never be reopened again. It'll never be reopened. Okay, number one, we must strive to enter the kingdom Because the door is narrow. That's what he tells us in verse 24. Strive to enter through the what door? He says it's a narrow door. You see, this door is so narrow that it is not easy to get through. In fact, it's very difficult to get through this door. Now, it's possible to get through the door, but it's not easy. It's difficult. You're going to have to squeeze into the opening that... This door affords. There's going to have to be a struggle that takes place in order for you to get through this narrow door. And because it is narrow, you're going to have to leave certain things behind. You're going to have to leave your sin behind. You can't take your sin through this narrow door. You can't take the love of sin with you. You're going to have to leave that behind. Think of your sin As a big backpack, like if you've ever gone backpacking, you know they have those big backpacks with all kinds of things in it. You just can't fit through the narrow door with that thing on your back. That's your sin. You've got to take off that backpack, set it aside, and now you can squeeze through the narrow door. And what I'm really talking about here is repentance. Nobody will enter God's kingdom without repenting of sin. That's what Jesus has just gotten done telling us. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. He says in Luke 13, 3 and 5, He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish. Now, nothing could be clearer than that. I know sometimes you hear people say, all you need is simple faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. You don't need to repent. You don't need to submit to Christ as your Lord. You just need simple faith in Him. That's not what Jesus taught, is it? Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. I would rather put my faith in the words of Jesus than in the words of another preacher, another person. Jesus said, repentance is absolutely essential if you will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what is it? What is repentance? It consists basically of five aspects. Let me just go over those quickly with you. Repentance is to know your sin. You've got to know it before you can repent of it. It's to know your sin. It's to grieve over your sin. There's sorrow that accompanies repentance. It's to confess your sin, to agree with God, admit to God this is wrong. This is sin. Number four, it's to break off with your sin. So there's a forsaking of sin. And number five, it's to hate your sin. So here they are. Know your sin, grieve over your sin, confess your sin, break off your sin, and hate your sin. There's a beautiful scripture in the book of Proverbs that expresses this so clearly. It's Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Do you hear that? He who conceals or hides his transgressions, he's never going to prosper. But the one who confesses them, he brings them out into the open and confesses them, and forsakes them, will find compassion. Now what does it mean to forsake something? It means to leave behind, doesn't it? I'm I'm letting go of this thing, I'm leaving it behind, and I'm going this direction. You can't hold on to your sins and repent of them at the same time. Repentance includes forsaking them, leaving them behind, and finding the compassionate mercy and grace of God. Now, not only must you leave behind your sin to get through this narrow door, but you've also got to leave behind your righteousness to get into this narrow door. You've got to leave your sin, you've got to leave your righteousness. I guess I should say your self-righteousness, because we have no true righteousness of our own. Any supposed righteousness that we have is merely self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus once told a parable. He told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed everybody else with contempt. And He said, one day there are two people who went up to the temple to pray. one was a Pharisee, very religious and moral man, And one was a tax collector, despised and hated because he was a traitor in the eyes of the Jews by taking money from the Jews and giving it to the Gentiles, the Romans. So these two guys go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, he starts praying right off. But his prayers never make it through the ceiling because the Bible says he prayed to himself. (laughs) He wasn't even praying to God. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I have. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a fornicator. I'm not unjust. I'm not like that, certainly not like that tax collector over there. Lord, I thank you that I'm a pretty good guy. That was his prayer. (laughs) Can you imagine praying a prayer like that? But I love the spirit of this tax collector. It says, he was a great distance off from that holy Pharisee. He knew that he was not in his company. So he was a great distance off in the temple. And he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He just kept smiting his breast because he knew that his heart was the seat of all of his sin. And he didn't say, Lord, I thank you that I'm better than everybody else. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, And Jesus said, You know who went home forgiven that day? It wasn't the religious, moral Pharisee. It was that tax collector. That teaches us that if we're to get through this narrow door, we're going to have to leave our self righteousness behind, just like the tax collector did. I remember very clearly a few years ago having a conversation with my own father. And he's passed away now. He, he died about a year ago. But I said, Dad, what's your hope of heaven? What's your confidence in that you're going to be in heaven one day? Because I just wanted to make sure that my dad was good. <laughs> he was right with God. And he said, well, my, my hope, my confidence is the fact that I'm, I'm a righteous person. And in my heart, I'm just screaming, Dad, no, no, no. It was like this knife just went into my heart and was twisted around because I realized that he didn't know the gospel. He was like the Pharisee who was trusting in his own righteousness. Oh, my friends, make sure that you have left your sin and you have left your righteousness behind because you can't be in the kingdom if you try to hold on to either one of those. Now there's a parallel passage here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, Jesus said there are two gates and two roads, two paths. One's a very wide gate. And it enters onto a very wide, spacious, open road. And there's a sign over that gate. Do you know what the sign says? This way to heaven. The problem is, it leads straight to hell. Jesus said, it leads to destruction. Then there's another small gate. And once you open that small gate, you find out the path is very narrow. It's, It's a narrow path. But Jesus said that that path is only found by a few, and it leads to life. The broad way? Destruction. Hell. The narrow path? Life. Heaven. That's what Jesus is teaching over here in Luke chapter 13. He's saying you're going to have to get through that narrow door. It's a narrow door in Luke 13. It's a narrow gate in Matthew chapter 7. You've got to go through that door, because that's the door that leads to heaven, that leads to life. Now, why do we have to strive, according to Jesus, to get into the kingdom? Because the door is narrow. Number two, because the door is going to soon be shut. Listen to what he says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Why? For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, what's he talking about? Jesus is talking about judgment day. There's coming a day when all of us will stand before Christ. He will be the judge. And some people on that day are going to want to enter the kingdom. And they're not going to be able to. Notice verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Now he says there is a head of the house. And there's coming a day when this head of the house is going to get up, go over to the door, and shut it. And that's it. That door will not be opened again. Now who's the head of the house that Jesus is talking about? Well, we know who it is because the people standing outside said, Lord, open up to us. So the head of the house is the Lord. And not only that, but verse 26, they say to this head of the house, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. So evidently the head of the house is none other than Jesus Christ. He's going to come and he's going to shut the door and there will be no more opportunity. For people to enter through that door once that takes place. Notice these people here. They called Jesus Lord. They said, we ate and drank in your presence, Lord. In other words, we were there when you multiplied the fish and the loaves. We we had fellowship together. We, We ate together. We had meals together. Lord. And not only that... You taught in our streets. You you taught in our neighborhoods. We heard your teaching, Lord. We heard you preach and teach from the mountainside and the seashore and in the streets. See, these were acquaintances of Jesus Christ. They were acquainted with him. They called him Lord. They were acquainted with the Lord. The problem was the Lord did not know them. And now there's no more chance ever... For them to be saved. Jeremiah 8 20 says, The harvest is past, summer has ended, and we are not saved. In other words, there is no more possible opportunity for me to ever enter the kingdom of God. The door has been shut, and it's shut forever. It reminds us of the teachings Jesus has been giving us, doesn't it? Back in chapter 12, he talked about the rich fool. This man was so wealthy and had so much money that his problem was knowing what to do with all of his crops. And so he finally came up with a beautiful idea. I know what I'll do. I'll just tear down the old barns. I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many years ahead. All you've got to do now is just eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him that very night, You fool. This night, your soul is required of you. The door was shut in that man's face and he would never enter it again. Jesus also talked about those Galileans in Luke 13 verses 1 to 5 that were offering sacrifices in the temple and Herod sent in some of his troops to slay them with the sword so that their own blood Was mingled with the sacrifices that they were offering. Now, of course, that morning when they got up, they had no idea that their life would be taken before they went to bed that evening. It came suddenly, came unexpectedly, the door was shut. We also have Jesus' statement in chapter 12, verse 40. He says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So this door can be shut on us when we die or it can be shut on us when Jesus Christ returns the second coming of our Lord but either way when you die or when Christ comes back the door is shut and there's absolutely no more opportunity to get in through that door now notice what we have here in chapter 13 the head of the house gets up he shuts the door and how do those people respond who are on the outside It says they're banging on the door, knocking on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. In other words, they feel they've got a right to be in there. Lord, what are you doing? Open up. We know who you are. We heard your teaching. We ate with you. You're our Lord. Open up. In other words, you get the sense that there's shock, surprise. And what's more, there's terror when they realize what has just happened. They thought they were good. With God. They thought they were saved. They thought they were on their way to heaven. When in fact, they were not at all. There is one word in verse 25 that I think we need to meditate on. He says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, up and up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And then in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For what? For many, I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. He didn't say just a couple of people or just a few. He said many. Many. This points to the millions of people not just in the United States but around the world who are self-deceived who are false converts and are, are, who are headed for hell when they think they're headed for heaven. They call Jesus their Lord. They're acquaintances of Christ but Christ doesn't know them. They still love their sin. They still practice lawlessness. They're still evildoers. Oh my goodness. This is a scary, scary picture. Try to put yourself in the position of these people. Let's say you're one of them. You've confessed Christ as your Lord, you confess that he's your Savior. You thought everything was good in your relationship with God, and then you find out on Judgment Day that you were wrong, that Christ says, I don't know you. You're an evildoer. You practice lawlessness. Oh, I can't think of a more terrifying thing. John Bunyan, in his book Pilgrim's Progress, once made this statement, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. J.C. Ryle said, Hell is truth known too late. You see, these people here that were rejected by Jesus Christ, they didn't strive. They never strove to enter into the kingdom. And now it is too late for them to strive because the door is shut. As long as the door was open, even though it was narrow, there was still a possibility of getting in if they strove. But there's no more possibility. And notice who Jesus is talking to in this passage. He's not talking to atheists. He's not talking to agnostics. He's talking to religious Jews. People who believed in the Old Testament scriptures. People who believed in God. People who prayed. People who went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. These were religious people. They were outwardly moral people. And to these kinds of people, Jesus said, many will seek to enter on that day and they won't be able to. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 25 and 27. He says, I do not know where you are from. And then again, he emphasizes it in verse 27. I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Now what does he mean by that? I don't know where you're from. He's saying, I don't know your origin. I don't know your source. You don't have your origin in God. You don't have your source in the power of the Spirit creating new birth within you. You're not a branch in me. There is no union between you and Christ. There's no vital saving relationship between you and Jesus. I don't know where you're from. You're not in my family. I didn't give you life. I didn't give you salvation. Like Jesus says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is knowing God. It's not knowing about God, it's knowing God. It's having a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Over in Matthew seven twenty three, Matthew puts it this way then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness Matthew calls them people who practice lawlessness Luke calls them evildoers now what's that talking about it's talking about a person whose basic bent is towards lawlessness or evil now they may have a veneer an external veneer of morality on the outside, but dig a little bit deeper. Peel away those onion skins and see what you find underneath there. Their heart, their soul had never been converted or changed. God had never given them a brand new nature where they loved holiness, where they loved Christ, where they loved worshiping God, where they loved the Word, where they loved to speak to lost people about the Gospel. This had never taken place in their life. Instead, they love sin. At their core, they love sin. And we're not ready to break off with it. And Jesus says, I don't know where you're from. He doesn't recognize them. They're not his friends. They're not his sheep. They're not his servants. So why do we have to strive to enter the kingdom? Number one, because the door is narrow. Number two, because the door is going to soon be shut. And number three, because once that door is shut, it will never be reopened again. That's the teaching we have in verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Now he speaks here about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where is that going to take place? Weeping. Gnashing of teeth. Well, Luke thirteen forty two says I'll just read that to you. Luke thirteen, verse forty two, when Jesus speaks about the pair of the tares, parable of the tares, he says that he, he's going to throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So where does weeping and gnashing of teeth take place? It takes place in the furnace of fire. Or, we have Matthew 22 verse 13 when Jesus is talking about the wedding feast. Jesus says there, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping and gnashing of teeth happens not only in the furnace of fire, it also happens in outer darkness a place of eternal solitary confinement. It's dark, no light. No people there to cheer you or to comfort you. Cut off, outer darkness, away from all good, away from all life and love and joy and peace. Cut off, away, outer darkness. And then one more scripture will help us here. It's Matthew 24, 51. Jesus says that he will cut them in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping and gnashing of teeth is a place where people are cut in pieces and assigned a place with hypocrites. There's no getting away, no getting around it. Jesus is describing hell. And he's saying that many will think they're going to heaven and instead they're going to end up in hell in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. Why are people going to weep in hell? Well, obviously they're going to weep because of the pain, the torment, the unending suffering, the punishment that they must endure. But I think also they're going to weep because they know that they have squandered and wasted any opportunity for them to enter the kingdom and there's no more hope there's no more chances all opportunities are gone and there's also gnashing of teeth that takes place gnashing of teeth that has to do with person who's angry these people in hell are going to be angry at God they'll gnash their teeth at him they will hate God they hate him in this life and that hatred is going to be carried over into the next life, and they will never cease hating God, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And Jesus then says in Luke 13, that they will recline at the table. Verse 29, and they will come from east and west and from north and south, and will will recline at the table. In the kingdom of God. Now, reclining at the table, that's talking about a feast. That's talking about a great festival. You know, the Jews are famous for the religious festivals like Passover, unleavened bread, Pentecost, first fruits, uh, harvest. Great festivals where all the Jewish people would come together and feast and fellowship and rejoice, eat and drink with one another. So, when Jesus talks about reclining at table, He's talking about a place of joy and fellowship and camaraderie and happiness and delight and enjoyment. But notice that's contrasted with weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a place of pain and misery instead of this place of joy and fellowship and delight. The contrast between heaven and hell. Now notice who's going to be in the kingdom. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. So all the patriarchs, the ones that God called out to be the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not only them, all the prophets. So you've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Habakkuk. Malachi and all the rest, men of God who preached God's truth even though it meant persecution and many times death, they're going to be in the kingdom. And that's not all because he says in verse 29, they're going to come from east and west and from north and south and are going to recline at the table in the kingdom. Now, who's this talking about? People are coming from east, west, north and south. That's not talking about this little strip of land in the Middle East called Palestine where the Jews lived. This is talking about from every portion of the globe. People are going to come from the East, from China, and the West, America, and South America, and the North, Alaska, (laughs) and the Arctic, and Greenland, and the South, Africa, Australia. All of these... Four quarters of the earth, Gentiles are going to stream into the kingdom. This is talking about the Gentiles being converted from all over the world. And they're going to stream into the kingdom. And that's why Jesus says in verse 30, And behold, some are last who are going to be first. The Gentiles are last. But they're going to be before you. They're going to be first. And some are first who will be last. You're first because you were raised as a Jew you're born as Jews but you're going to be last because you didn't strive to enter the kingdom now as we wrap up this message I've got two questions to ask you they're sobering questions but they're important that you take the time to really think about these questions number one are you absolutely sure you're saved You know, there are some things where it's not that important if we make a mistake Lots of things are like that. Whether you make a wrong turn here, well, you can always double back around and still find your way to your destination. Who cares? That's not that big of a deal. But if you miss heaven, that's a really, really big deal. That's a mistake you will never be able to recover from. And the time to figure out whether God has converted you or not is not when you're standing before Christ on Judgment Day. The time is now. The time is now. The Apostle Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Test yourself to see if Jesus Christ be in you. I'm not telling you to do something that's crazy or weird. I'm telling you to do something that's biblical. Take a slow, long, good, hard look at your life, is there any true, real evidence, in your life, that indicates, that you have passed, from death, to life, that you have experienced, the new birth, that you are one of Christ's, sheep, is there any real evidence, to suggest that, do you have a changed nature, oh my friends, there is nothing more important, than for you to know, Whether you have passed from death to life. Do you know you're saved? Second question Are you striving? Is your Christian life characterized by striving to enter the kingdom? Striving denotes effort, doesn't it? It denotes concentration, focus attention preoccupation I want to suggest to you that the main business of your life should be the salvation of your own soul as the primary business of your life is it is that the primary business of your life the salvation of your soul it ought to be our consuming interest we have to be willing to take great pains to make sure That we are saved. We're in God's kingdom. He has converted us. And it will require fighting. Fighting the world. Fighting our flesh. And fighting the devil. We ought to think about this daily. It ought to be something. We ought to be thinking about God and Christ and heaven. And our relationship to him as a daily thing. And it should govern everything that we do. We should be preoccupied with our salvation. Are we Christ's sheep? And if so, let's enjoy the sweetness of being one of Christ's sheep and walking with Him and fellowshipping with Him. My friends, make every effort to strive to enter the kingdom of God. If it means laying aside sin, then do it. If it means forsaking sin, breaking off with sin, then deal harshly with it. Remember, Paul said... Those who enter the kingdom are characterized by killing, putting to death, the deeds of the body. So are you forgetting what lies behind, but reaching forward to what lies ahead? Striving to attain the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Are you striving, or are you just sort of sauntering through life? Not much interest, some interest. Enough interest to go to church but not really enough interest to make this the preoccupation of your life. It's a bad sign, my friend. Very bad sign if you are not serious, deadly serious about your Christian faith. It's true. And I have to reemphasize this. It is true that salvation is a gift of God. Romans 6:23. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not strive to earn this gift. We do not strive to deserve this gift. But we're going to have to strive to enter. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to do their utmost to hold you back. And you're going to have to do battle. You're going to have to overcome. And you will. If you have been born of the Spirit, you will overcome. And you will enter into the heavenly paradise with Jesus Christ. Oh... In order to hold on to the cross, you're going to have to let go of whatever's in your hands to begin with. And if your hands are full of your own lusts and your own sins and your own flesh, you're not going to be able to grasp the cross by which you're saved. The Christian life will require diligence, sacrifice, discipline, and the mortification of your sins. And so let me just say again, my friends, strive to enter the kingdom. Lord, would you bless the teaching of Jesus to the lives of the people that hear this message that they would forget about this simple, easy American Christianity and they would start to do what Jesus taught us to do, which is to strive to enter the kingdom, to make it the main business of our life, to put to death sin, to forsake sin, and to live a holy, righteous life as evidence that you have converted us. Work in us, Lord, to will and to do of your great good pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.